0: been a grubbin on a little farm on the flat and windy plains i've been a listenin to the hungry cattle ball i'm going to pack my wife and kids i'm going to hit that western road i'm gonna hit that organ trail is comin' fall i'm going to hit that organ trail is comin' fall hit that organ trail is comin'
1: fall hello and For welcome back to chris and, and reggie's cosmic treadmill episode number 41 where we go back, back to, to the past, the past. And read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com Or you can get us and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and by Going West, young man. Hmm. (laughs) We have a uh, strange book this week. We do. (laughs) I don't know if it's that strange. You know, it's just a uh, run-of-the-mill comic book. But this is a Reggie pick, in uh, in a sense... Uh, It is A a book and a book that is currently being published You can go to the store right now And get the latest issue I don't know what issue that is off the top of my head But it's (laughs) it's kind of up there now I think it's in the early 20s But uh, what what, what book are we talking about here
0: We are talking about uh, an image comic Called Manifest Destiny Number one Uh, Cover date November 2013 Released November 13th uh, 1913 no 2013 (laughs) (laughs) Written by Chris Dinges uh, penciled and inked by Matthew Roberts, colored by Owen Gianni, leaded by Pat Brousseau, and uh, like we said, came out from Image Comics on their Skybra- Sky- Skybound yeah. <laughs> brand. that's the uh, Robert Kirkman one.
1: That's right. That's Robert Kirkman's baby.
0: And uh, for two dollars ninety-nine
1: cent. Yeah, cheap. And I think actually the, uh, yeah. I mean, the first trade has been out quite a quite a while now. I, I believe the first trade, like most Image trades, is ten bucks. Yep. So let me tell and you can get it cheaper than that. Too, if you are are paying a little bit of attention, so uh, mm-hmm. this is not a big trial. But you know, I I'll just say up front, it is a story of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and we will get into that. In fact, this this episode, Chris, might be more of an American history episode yes. than a uh, comics history. But it all comes back. We all we'll, we make it work the best we can. <laughs> uh, but as always, first we do some some uh, creator bios. We're going to start with. Chris Dinges, born February 17th, 1974, in Alexandria, Virginia. He enjoyed comics from a young age, he says. My folks owned a, small, owned a small market in town. I'd go there, sit in the back room, eat junk food, and read. I re-re-read those books so much that they all kind of stick in my head. Two that really left an impression were The Ghost Rider and The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. The covers of Ghost Rider and Conan were always nuts. I don't even remember the story super well, but I remember the artwork, which was dark and creepy. Actually, there were some issues of ROM that were around that to that were that were really creepy. I think that they had the dire wraiths in them. I liked some goofy stuff too. I was a sucker for Marvel Two and One with the Thing. I read the number seven annual where he boxes the champion and issue number ninety six when he's in the hospital afterwards. I don't know why, but they were goofy and I loved it.
0: Yes, Andy. He got more serious about comics after his parents took an artistically inclined friend of his older brothers. He says, My parents took in and became guardians to this kid who went to high school with my brother. He had a talent for drawing and painting and was great at copying comics and mimicking different artists. I was already into comics before he moved into the house, but he really kicked my interest up to the next level. Plus, he was way into Conan and Frazetta artwork and got me into that stuff. Uh, he would get his uh, start as a production assistant uh, for on For Richer or on, uh That was ABC television, 1997. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know much about <laughs> TV. He,
1: he's a TV guy, though, yeah. He is. All the stuff he did mainly was TV.
0: Yeah, and he was a uh, writer's assistant on a show called Ed that uh, ran on NBC between 2000 and 2004. Uh, he actually wrote an unsolicited script for the show, which uh, <laughs> they say you're not supposed to do. Yeah. He uh, wound up giving that to Rob Burnett and John Beckham, and the executive producers and creators of the show. Uh, he recalls that they read it and didn't hate it. And then he begged them for a job, and they finally gave him his break. And uh, he would go on to write five episodes of Ed.
1: What a beautiful story. A little begging, and you get your break. That's nice.
0: It that works every time. <laughs> no, I maybe mean, it works uh, one out of every hundred.
1: One out of every hundred times. <laughs> but it does work sometimes, folks. Uh, so, uh, so he's been a TV show producer and screenwriter, screenwriter for many shows since, most recently Being Human on Sci-Fi, That went from 2011 to 2014. Agent Carter on ABC. That was the uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. spinoff. 2015 to 2016 and uh, he's also written uh, at least one episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. this year, if not a couple that's mm. uh, 2013 to present, also on ABC uh, Kristen just kicked around the idea of Lewis and Clark plus Monster with a mutual friend of Robert Kirkman's, that would be the creator of The Walking Dead and CEO of Skybound Entertainment he says he was sitting around drinking with friends and complaining about things like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies I was saying that all you had to do to make a successful story was take a real or or fictional historical figure and cram monsters into them. I joked that you could just say Lewis and Clark were secretly hunting monsters. Then I realized I I could make money off the idea and hoard myself out. And he took the idea to Robert Kirkman, and that's how the comic came about. And that is really as much relevant stuff as I could find. Uh, Chris himself (laughs) says in an interview in 2014... I don't know what the world should know about me. I prefer being a man of mystery to being a bore and a jackass, so I'll keep it to a minimum. I'm just a dummy from Maryland trying to make a living. So, fair enough, I guess. That's uh mm-hmm. I think his career still has uh many chapters to to be written, so we'll we'll leave it there for now.
0: I would imagine so, and I I had those same complaints about those stupid, uh, uh, you know, historical, darker historical things, too. I thought those were ridiculous.
1: They got pretty formulaic. You know, the first one's always creative, and the rest of them are like, oh,
0: yeah. Everything is zombies. We get it. Uh, Now, the artist. We got so much to talk about. Oh, (laughs) boy. If you will look into his bibliography, you'll see some of his work includes Battle Pope with Robert Kirkman, uh, Ink Punk's Quarterly, and Paladin Alpha. Um, He lives in Roanoke, Virginia. Maybe he's a lifelong resident of Virginia. We don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, Manifest Destiny (laughs) is his first full time comic gig. And uh, seems like a nice fella
1: Yeah, there's a lot of interviews uh, that he's in that are about Manifest Destiny, this comic book But not a lot of information about himself, just sort of like he enjoys drawing And that he has, you know, studied a lot of reference for the book, but that's about it So, again, another guy whose career has yet to be fully written, so uh, keep, keep your eye out Now, uh, you know, like I said, this book is a historical fiction about the Lewis and Clark expedition. So I'd like to start with some nonfiction and talk a little bit about the tale of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea and what that was really all about. Uh, Basically, the Oregon Trail, right? And and that's essentially Mm -hmm. what the the whole story is. If you played the Oregon Trail, you pretty much know the story. But uh, we'll give you a couple other facts here. So this all began with something called the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, the American acquisition of 828,000 square miles of territory from France in 1803 under our third U.S. President, Thomas Jefferson. The Kingdom of France controlled the, the Louisiana Territory from 1699 until it was ceded to Spain in 1762. Napoleon in 1800, hoping to reestablish an empire in North America, regained ownership of, of Louisiana. And I, I think it might be important, people that don't know, that this territory isn't just New Orleans. Yeah, it's basically everything west of the Mississippi, except for like Texas, Arizona, and California, and like mm-hmm. Utah, a couple of things, but maybe maybe more like Wyoming. But uh, pretty much like two thirds of America, chunk, yeah. yeah <laughs> big was was this whole thing, uh, and France's failure to put down the revolt in Saint Dominique, coupled with the prospect of renewed warfare with the United Kingdom, prompted Napoleon to sell Louisiana to the to the United States real cheap.
0: Yeah, they paid 50 million francs, which is uh, 11 million 11, 250,000 USD, uh, and a cancellation of debts that were worth 15 million francs, or three uh, three million three million seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, American, uh, for a total of 68 million francs, uh, 15 million USD, or about a quarter of a billion if we were to change that into uh, more recent dollars. Yeah. Um, the United States originally sought to purchase Only the port city of New Orleans And its adjacent coastal lands But quickly ac- accepted the bargain As, yeah. as you might, might imagine
1: frankly threw in like you know the, uh, Ten times more land
0: yeah, we'll, 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 we'll put the good rims on it um, <laughs> Now the territory contained land That forms Arkansas, Missouri Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas and Nebraska uh, The portion of Minnesota West of the Mississippi River A large portion of North Dakota A large portion of South Dakota The northeastern section of New Mexico, the northern portion of Texas, the area of Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, east of the Continental Divide, Louisiana, uh, west of the Mississippi River, and small portions of land within the present Canadian provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan.
1: Wow. Well, all that land before it was named, uh, these crazy names that Chris just rattled off, it had to be... Uh, explored and examined and that's when Thomas Jefferson put together the core of discovery expedition he commissioned the expedition shortly after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 in order to explore and to map the newly acquired territory and find a practical route across the western half of the continent and to establish an American presence in this territory before Britain and other European powers tried to claim it so as a matter of fact one thing he wanted to try to find was a water route. That went Mm -hmm. all the way from the east to the west He had very commercial plans already For uh, this area And for the west coast uh, You know, Portland and whatever Now Jefferson commissioned the Corps of Discovery And named U.S. Army Captain Meriwether Lewis its leader Who in turn selected William Clark as second in command
0: Yeah, Meriwether Lewis Who was born August 18th, 1774 Uh, He lived until October 11th, 1809 Didn't live very long No He was born in the colony of Virginia. After his father died of pneumonia, he uh, moved in with his mother and stepfather, Captain John Marks, uh, in Georgia in May of uh, 1780. Lewis had no formal education until he was 13 years of age, but spent his youth learning and fostering skills in hunting and camping. At the age of 13, he was sent back to Virginia for education by private tutors. His father's older brother, Nicholas Lewis, became his guardian. In uh, 1793, Lewis graduated from Liberty Hall, which is now Washington and Lee University, at age 19. That year he joined the Virginia Militia, and in 1794 he was sent as part of a detachment involved in putting down the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, to refresh our memories on that, the Whiskey (laughs) Rebellion was a tax protest in the United States beginning in 1791. Uh, The so-called Whiskey Tax was the first tax imposed on a domestic product uh, by the newly formed federal government, intending to cover some of the debt incurred during the Revolutionary War. In uh, 1795, Lewis joined the U.S. Army, commissioned as an ensign, It's an army rank, which is later abolished and is kind of the equivalent of a modern second lieutenant, and it's here that he would meet... William Clark.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of our American listeners probably learned all this in eighth and ninth grade. I know I did, and I forgot, and about forgot it. And forgot So <laughs> it's practically new to it's new to both of us. Believe me. Yes. Just, don't feel like we're uh, Chris and I are some Will, some Lewis and Clark uh, experts here. We, we, this I'm all, a buff. It's yeah. all came up because of this. But uh, anyway, uh, William Clark, born August 1st, 1770, lived till September 1st, 1838. He did a little better than um, Lewis Merriweather Uh, He was born in the colony of Virginia Carolyn County to be exact The Clarks were common planters in Virginia Owners of of modest estates and a few slaves And members of the Anglican Church Clark had no formal education And was taught at home like many contemporaries William Clark's five older brothers Fought in Virginia units during During the American Revolutionary War But William was too young After the war the two oldest Clark brothers Made arrangements for their parents and family To relocate to Kentucky William, his parents, and his three sisters, and the Clark family slaves, arrived in Kentucky in March 1785. The Clark family settled at Mulberry Hill, that was a uh, place they named that a lot in Happy Days, right? That's that's where you (laughs) found your thrill. thrill, Yeah, Yeah, I believe Uh, (laughs) that was a plantation along Beargrass Creek near Louisville. This was William Clark's primary home until 1803. His older brother George Rogers Clark taught William wilderness survival skills. Uh, Clark joined several local militias rising to the rank of Ensign. While serving as a Frontier Army officer in 1795, Meriwether Lewis was court-martialed for allegedly challenging a lieutenant to a duel during a drunken dispute. The 21-year-old was found not guilty of the charges, but his superiors decided to transfer him to a different rifle company to avoid any future disputes with, uh, you know, people. His new commander turned out to be William Clark, and this is how they met. Uh, On July 4th, 1796, Clark resigned due to poor health, but uh, Meriwether Lewis recruited recruited Clark right out of retirement, then age 33, to share command of the newly formed Corps of Discovery.
0: Yeah, Jefferson uh, chose Lewis to lead the expedition rather than a qualified scientist because it was impossible to find a character who, to a sci- complete science in botany, natural history, miner- mineral, mineral-, <laughs> mineral, how the hell do you say that? Mineral- mineralogy, <laughs> the study of minerals, uh, astronomy, <laughs> and astronomy, joined the firmness of constitution and character. Uh, prudence, habits adapted to the woods, and a familiarity with the Indian manners and character requisite for this undertaking—all the latter qualifications Captain Lewis has. Uh, Lewis and Clark met near Louisville, Kentucky, in uh, on, no- on November, huh? on October 14th, 1803, at the fall of the Ohio. At the falls of the Ohio, and before departing later in the month, the corps, nine young men, were enlisted into the Corps of Discovery.
1: Yeah, this is sort of like the. Uh, B characters on the trip uh, yes. And they do sort of factor into the book Although not You don't. The information we're imparting is not Important for the book yeah. But uh, I find it interesting anyway So William Clark sure. had seven recruits waiting when, when Lewis reached Louisville And Lewis brought two more with him These were the nine young men we're going to tell you Who they were now There was William Bratton He lived 1778 to 1841 Born in Augusta County, Virginia And came to Kentucky as a child He served as a hunter and a blacksmithing assistant on the expedition. There was John Coulter. He was born around 1775 and died around 1813. Also born in Augusta County, Virginia. His family settled in the Mayville, Kentucky area about 1779. He specialized also in hunting. Uh, It seems like I I bet these are the Lewis guys, all these these Virginia (laughs) fellas. I have a feeling. Uh, Joseph Field, also uh, born around 1780, died around 1807, born in Virginia also. Family settled in the Fish Pools area of southern Jefferson County, Kentucky, in 1784.
0: We got Reuben Field, who uh, was born around 1781, died around 1822. He was Joseph's brother. Uh, these were the best, most courageous hunters on the expedition, and some of the first people recruited. We have Charles Floyd, born around 1782, died 1804, uh, born in Jefferson County, Kentucky. Uh, He was appointed one of the three sergeants for the Corps and was the first recruited. Uh, George Gibson was born sometime, but died in 1809 from Mercer County. We, we didn't cut him in half to count his rings, so we don't know. Uh, he was a talented hunter, played the fiddle, and apparently knew some sign language that helped him communicate with American Indians.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. You know, like that. Yeah, uh, that's, that's you,
0: forward thinking, right? That's
1: where you can get it done. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. like, instead of instead of just yelling louder at someone, you know, trying to attack. Nathaniel Pryor, born in 1772, died 1831. Born in Virginia and was living in Jefferson County, Kentucky by 1782. He was the last of the nine young men to be recruited, although we will name a couple more. And he and Charles Floyd were first cousins. Like his cousin, he was appointed one of the expedition sergeants. There was also George Shannon. He was born 1785, died 1836, born in Washington County, Pennsylvania, and moved as a child to Belleville, Ohio. He was in school in Pittsburgh in the summer of 1803, and left his studies for the excitement of the expedition. Uh, pretty, pretty, you know, courageous of the kid. He was the youngest official member of the corps, and uh, last of the nine young men was John Shields, uh, born 1769, died 1809. Born in Rockingham County, Virginia, and lived in Kentucky by the mid by the 1790s. Although married, he was recruited not only for his hunting ability. But for his blacksmithing and gunsmithing skills, so mm-hmm. it's important to say that most of the guys in this exposition were married. They didn't have their They're own attached, families, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think was an important aspect. They didn't think, you know, many of these guys would make it back, and uh, we'll talk more about that after we get into the book.
0: Certainly. Uh, we have one more important character to introduce. This is a uh, Sacagawea, uh, born May of 1788, died December 20th, 1812. Sacagawea, which means bird woman, was born into the Agadaika? Ag- Agadaika?
1: You guess as good as mine, bro.
0: We're going to go with it. Yep. Uh, the salmon eater sect of the Lemhi Shoshone tribe in Lemhi County, Idaho. In uh, 1800, when she was approximately 12, she and several other girls were kidnapped by a group of Hidatsa in a battle and taken to, as, a, as a captive to the Hidatsa village near present-day Washburn, North Dakota. Uh, at around 13, she was taken as a wife by Toussaint Chabanou, a Quebecois trapper living in the village. Uh, he also had taken Otter Woman, uh, another young Shoshone, as his wife.
1: You know, there's an alternate story about Otter Woman. I'm sure that's so you know, amazing. The woman that lived with the otters. I just, you know. I want yeah, to know more be. about her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we need the spin spinoff. Uh, now, uh, Charbonneau, would, uh, he was born uh, March 20th, 1767, and died August 12th, 1843. Uh, he was reported to have purchased both wives from the Hidatsa or to have won Sacagawea during a gambling game.
1: Ah, uh, you know, same same thing, really, at the end of the game. Sure.
0: It uh, all costs money.
1: Yeah, exactly. Money was exchanged, and the human bodies were uh, returned. Anyway, uh, Sacagawea was pregnant for With her first child, when the Corps discovery arrived near the Hidatsa villages to spend the winter of 1804 to uh, 1805, they interviewed several trappers who might be able to interpret or guide the expedition up the Missouri River in the springtime. They agreed to hire Charbonneau as an interpreter, as an interpreter, because he discovered they discovered his wife spoke Shoshone, and they knew that he would they would need the help of the Shoshone t- tribes at the headwaters of the Missouri. Charbonneau and Sacagawea moved into the expedition's fort a week later, and William Clark nicknamed her Janie. Jean Baptiste Charbonneau was born on February eleventh, eighteen 1805, and the Corps set out not long after that with the brand new baby. So mm. that was another new uh, person on the expedition. But it, you know, it's important to say that you know they didn't run into a Sacagawea until a year into their yeah. exp- expedition. So she doesn't actually figure into the issue we're talking about, but. You can't really talk about this expedition without talking about her. She really was integral. Uh, Vital. We have more and more about it later on. And besides those nine young men, uh, Toussaint, Sacagawea, and their baby, the expedition included about two dozen enlisted men and William Clark's personal slave, York.
0: Hmm. Now, before we talk about Manifest Destiny, the book, let's talk about the actual concept. Uh, The United States' rapid expansion, and Lewis and Clark's expedition in particular, gave rise to the American concept of Manifest Destiny, which is basically a belief that Americans were ordained to conquer the continent and remake it in a new image. Uh, Clearly, the basic doctrine included subjugating any uh, any resident Native Mm Americans— But it was also a refutation of the old world of Europe. Uh, so no no stinky, musty castles. Exactly,
1: here. yeah. This is, this is a, a new way to do things, and it involves uh, a lot of gunplay
0: and, I don't know, working <laughs> yes. with your hands. Sure, sure. Trades. It's all about trades. Right. Uh, now, there was never a set of principles defining Manifest Destiny, therefore it was always just a general idea rather than a specific policy uh, made uh, made with a motto. Journalist John L. O. Sullivan, an influential uh, advocate for Jacksonian democracy, wrote an article in 1839 which, while not using the term manifest destiny, did predict a divine destiny for the United States, based upon values such as equality, rights of conscience, and personal enfranchisement to, quote, establish on earth the moral dignity and salvation of man.
1: Six years later, in 1845, Al Sullivan wrote another essay titled Annexation in the Democratic Review, which was, uh, which he first used the phrase Manifest Destiny. In this article, he urged the U.S. to annex the Republic of Texas, not only because Texas desired this, but because it was our Manifest Destiny to overspread the continent allotted by Providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions, end quote. O'Sullivan's second use of the phrase became extremely influential, and this is the one that gets quoted when people talk about the uh, phrase Manifest Destiny. Mm -hmm. On December 27, 1845, in his newspaper, the New York Morning News, O'Sullivan addressed the ongoing boundary dispute with Britain. That would be the uh, Canadian border. O'Sullivan argued that the United States had a, had the right to claim the whole of Oregon, and but that claim is by right of our manifest destiny to overspread and possess the whole of the continent, which Providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us.
0: <laughs> wow, you know we got That's a lot it. of words there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, so to sort of break it down, essentially, since America was spreading democracy and, and Britain wasn't. The United States were owed the territory because they would, quote-unquote, improve it, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing everyone a big favor. This is essentially they should, they should get out of our way. Uh, it might be worthwhile to mention, or you might not care, and that's also fine, that pre-Civil War Democrats endorsed the concept of manifest destiny, but most Republicans, including Abraham Lincoln, did not. Um, it just didn't really jibe with their uh, vision of an inclusive, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, smaller government. Uh, The phrase Manifest Destiny is most often associated with the territorial expansion of the United States from 1812, 1812 to 1860 From the end of the War of 1812 to the beginning of the American Civil War But it certainly could apply to the events that are going to take place in this very comic book
0: Yes, Manifest Destiny number one The cover is a scene of Lewis and Clark in profile At the edge of a cliff made of grotesque monsters and body parts uh, against an orange sunset, the purple foreground looks uh, pretty good.
1: Yeah, I, I just like the composition of it. It's it's very striking and it's not complicated, yes. but it does the job. So I was it uh, does. We uh, we had to note, we had to mention it. So the opening page shows a crane in flight high above the winding Mississippi River. Lewis and Clark's expedition. They're traveling on the river. That's one large boat with a cabin on deck and two smaller boats flanking at the rear. An excerpt from Meriwether Lewis's journal, captioned.
0: Now, uh, how do we uh, how do we say the date in in British? <laughs> well, twenty three May. Is it twi- is it twenty three or twenty third? Uh, sure, whatever you like. <laughs> okay, now which voice is this going to be? I don't know.
1: You pick, you pick your favorite. <laughs> pick your favorite slightly British voice. My, f-
0: my favorite Beetle. Yeah, uh, <laughs> twenty three May, eighteen o four. Set out early. Expect to make La Charente within one or two days. Current has been mild. I haven't seen any of, any sign of man or creature for over one week. We continue to carry out the public aspect of our mission. Mm-hmm.
1: Scene switches to the deck of the boat. A brown-haired Lewis and blonde Clark stand in some really pompous military gear. <laughs> Clark is wielding an antique rifle which... I guess actually wouldn't be an antique rifle in 1804. It was probably a brand new rifle.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, Lewis's caption continues. This morning I saw a new... To- oh, am, I, am I doing Australian or am I doing British? I can't
1: tell. <laughs> you do the best you can, Chris. <laughs> you know, we're not trained for this sort of thing, but we will, we will try to make it... At least make the voices different from each other. Sure. That's the main thing.
0: <laughs> I think we won't have a problem with that. <laughs> this morning I saw a new sort of bird. It was too high for a detailed sketch.
1: So Clark fires on the crane, hitting it dead on. A really good shot with a musket, I must say. And Lewis is later seen sketching in a journal while the dead bird is splayed before him on a table.
0: (laughs) Clark assisted in obtaining the bird. I will present it with all the samples. I fear that birds, small game, and Indians will be the only creatures we come across.
1: So now he's sort of, while he's writing, he's looking at a map of the United States. And uh, this is really telling that like there's not much to it uh, at the time. It shows, sure. it shows British territory to the north, that would be Canada. Spanish to the southwest, that would be like kind of Texas to California. And and uh, we see the colonies and a handful of other new states. But we got like just the Louisiana territory, just a big chunk of territory right there. And Lewis mm-hmm. reveals more about the non-public as- aspect of this expedition.
0: He does in caption. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> expected uh, <clears throat> ahem, ahem, ex- expected to discover more exotic life and face fierce confrontation based on President Jefferson's description of the mission. He insisted that the Corps would be tasked with destroying monsters and clearing the way for our expansion of the United States. We have fought no monsters. Biggest obstacle so far is boredom.
1: Hmm. Lewis then reveals the expedition is made up of some military volunteers but supplemented with criminals and murderers, and Lewis does not
0: trust them. He does not. The devil seems to have swayed over their idle hands. Jensen, one of those men Clark retrieved from the stockade, stole rum from the mess. He was disciplined by Captain Clark. Twenty lashes.
1: And you have a pretty brutal panel of Clark whipping Jensen with a braided cat-of-nine-tails. It's from the point of view that we can see his anguished face. I mean, Jensen's face, not Clark's. He really looks mm. like this is a painful ordeal. Uh, and Lewis, you just gotta pay good money for that <laughs> exactly today. That would, that would be uh $50 <laughs> an hour at least, but um, yeah. So, uh, Lewis writes uh, about this pet pa- in his journal. Oh, he writes this he passage in his journal. Yes,
0: beginning to worry that my president has either been bamboozled by the French telltales or has taken leave of his senses and created such mythology in his own mind.
1: But upon reflection, Lewis crosses out every line and instead writes.
0: This is great Men are brace for action Surely we will encounter the creatures spoken of by President Jefferson When he wisely commissioned this mission
1: Yeah, which is probably smart to do But you can totally read the original sentences I mean, just <laughs> just line through them It's not like it's, it's impossible
0: Yes, uh, now Clark shows up and asks Lewis If he's working on the journal And he asks which one uh, He's keeping two journals, you see One for the Congress to see And the other classified Which is probably the one that they will present to uh, the President only Yeah uh, the two move on to more immediate concerns, where Clark says, And how's Jensen? And
1: Clark says, uh
0: Jensen <laughs> The man you whipped <laughs> The man you whipped last night. Honestly, Clark, you usually take more interest in our troops, even those you punish.
1: Jensen isn't one of our troops, Lois. Never forget that. Jensen is a murderer. If it weren't for us, he'd have he'd have his head in the noose. And if he steals again, I may hang him myself. Same with the rest of them.
0: That brings me to my next concern. I'm afraid the men. (laughs) I'm afraid the men are only going to grow more unruly because they don't truly understand the gravity of this mission. Maybe if we informed them.
1: That they're out there hunting monsters? Are you mad? Because that's exactly what they would believe. I'm not even sure why we're on this goose chase anymore. You know exactly why all of us are out here.
0: The enlisted men want promotions and money, the convicts want pardons, and President Jefferson promised us each a stake in this new land once we've purged it.
1: Clark then suggests they name the bird Lewis, his researching, uh, they name it Clark's Heron. It's only fair since he shot it.
0: If every animal you blasted bared your name, you'd have your own menagerie.
1: You are. And then just then someone bursts into the cabin and hollers for Captain Lewis and Captain Clark to come outside. And they have come upon this giant arch made of this made of green organic material. This clearly references the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, Missouri. That's mm. that big stainless steel-clad arch that rises 630 feet in the air, completed in 1965. And that is a monument to America's western expansion, so that's very telling. In this Absolutely. series, though, it might be worth saying that they encounter several arches as they go across America. And whenever there's an arch, it denotes... Something weird is happening nearby. There's a new creature. There's a new something going on. Uh, so this is the first time we see it, but it it becomes a common. You know, you know things are about to get fun when you when you roll up on an arch. Uh, a team rows a, bo- uh, a boat ashore to examine the arch, and Clark orders the men and prepares them for a possible Indian ambush.
0: Yes, he says. You think Indians could have built this?
1: It's your job to figure that out. I'm here to make sure you don't take any arrows, axes, and knives in the process. Lewis and Clark step closer to the arch, and you can see it's almost like tightly bound trees.
0: Yes. uh, Lewis goes, It's
1: very... Big? Yes, big. And then Clark calls over his manservant, York, which is an actual historically factual reference. He really did bring Hey-o. his manservant, so ding there you go. Uh,
0: now, they set to collecting some samples from the structure while Lewis makes a sketch of the arch, uh, the arc. Um Things are very quiet and serene for a while. York picks a cool-looking flower that looks like a bloodied skull. Uh, meanwhile, Wally and Jensen are holding the perimeter around the arch and chit-chatting.
1: Yeah, with idle hands, as we were talking about yes. before. Jensen says, I don't like this, Wally. We should have stayed in the stockade. This place wakes of the devil, it does.
0: Settle down. This is just some piece of native mumbo jumbo, I reckon. They probably tie their squaw to it and pray it'll rain. That sort of thing. And then they pause.
1: And Jensen says, I've been thinking.
0: I wouldn't do that. When you get to thinking, you usually end up beating the whip. Why
1: are we here, Wallace? Why mix the lot of us in with honest soldiers? They
0: said the mission was dangerous. They ran out of volunteers.
1: So they promised us freedom in exchange for a successful mission, yeah. And the uniforms were offered gold. But don't you think they could have dangled more gold in front of some enlisted men and shoved them on a boat?
0: Jensen says he's been eavesdropping conversations on the boat, and one thing the criminals and soldiers have in common is that none of them have families. Uh, Sergeant Burton's father died in a duel and his mother committed suicide a year later. Russell's wife died of consumption.
1: Corporal Carp was, ra- was raised in an orphanage along with half the men in his journey.
0: Yes, Molly says, what about you?
1: Never knew before. My mother was a whore. She got a scalp caved did trying to steal money from a customer.
0: I'm sorry. It what? About your mother, that's terrible.
1: Jensen tells Wally to shut up and points out that having no family makes them all very expendable. Jensen figures there's worse things out in the wild than natives and says he's ready to take off at the first sign of Spooky. And the conversation is interrupted by Sergeant Parker.
0: Yes, he goes, always forward, boys. Vigilance is key.
1: Absolutely, Sergeant.
0: Conversation can wait, even if it's about something as important as desertion. Desertion.
1: <laughs> and uh, right, right here, Jensen and Wally share a guilty look, and maybe like, a nope," like you know. Yeah. I, I really like it because it because it it really feels like this something that would have happened in high school. Like you think you got caught, but then they let the guy lets you know that he knows what you're up to. And you're like, yeah. mm-hmm. anyway.
0: <laughs> Parker goes. You men are lucky I caught this conspiracy still in its crib. Not that I envy you, the punishment you'll receive. Uh, Captain Clark hates nothing more than cowardice.
1: Just then, Lewis's weird looking black dog smells something in the air and growls. Wally, that is a weird looking dog. It is weird. I, it almost doesn't look like a dog. <laughs> a I don't really understand. Yeah. I think it's a weird breed. But uh, yeah, Wally and Jensen try to plead their case to Sergeant Parker, but he's not hearing any of it. And then there's some movement in the bush and a galloping sound.
0: Yes, yeah, something thunders out of the woods and over Sergeant Parker, seriously messing up his right knee, like really messing it up, exposing bone. and whatnot. <laughs> uh, Lewis and Clark head towards the commotion and can obviously see what this creature looks like, while the reader cannot see them yet. Uh, Lewis notes that it's headed for the arch, and we can now see a few details over uh, several panels. First, we see it's four-legged with hooves. Uh, It has what you'd figure would be a body of a bison and also a hand that wields an axe. Yeah. Yeah, Yes, a a big duotone splash page shows a silhouette of this figure, axe raised, about to bear down on Lewis in the foreground. And it appears to be some sort of a buffalo minotaur.
1: I mean, the the, the way it's revealed, I really like it because you do see these... Very cinematic, yeah. yeah. Every panel, and you know, I think this is where the author's, uh, you know, television... uh,
0: Directorial skills yeah.
1: come in, maybe, uh, or maybe not, but uh, you know, yeah, like each panel, it's like, all right, here's something normal. Then it's like, that's a little less normal. Then you're like, a hand with an axe, that's not, <laughs> that is something, and that implies so much about, you know, intelligence and all this other stuff, but anyway. Uh, Lewis trips over a crate and stumbles backward, and just then Clark files twin pistols. Uh, it's
0: kind of. <laughs> really kind of. Cool. doesn't mess around.
1: Uh, into the, right into the chest of the beast, piercing it through the back. It dies instantly. Clark says, Lewis, are you all right? I'm good.
0: I'm. I'm good.
1: Elsewhere but nearby, Jensen crawls over to the wounded Sergeant Parker.
0: Yeah, and Parker goes,
1: mm, What was that? A oh, horseman, sir! I'm out of nowhere. I think I broke my leg. It's worse than that. I think you broke your neck.
0: Well, then Wally goes, Jensen.
1: Shut up, Wally. Uh, Jensen snaps Sergeant Parker's neck right there on the ground. Please, I I have... Uh, Jensen says, you have no wound, just like the rest
0: of us. And Wally looks on horrified.
1: Yeah, and it's a really good shot of horror. Also... Sure We're seeing right here Jensen Although I don't think This should be a surprise to anybody Is probably not the most truthful fella uh, yeah. <laughs> Men stand around the corpse Of the bison minotaur And wonder what tribe It might be from
0: Yeah, Lewis posits He's not from any tribe I've ever seen Now we get a good look At this thing It's a bison body With muscular human torso And arms coming out of the neck uh, Then a bison head On top of that it's uh, wearing paint and armor, uh, plus it has an axe, implying uh, implying some measure of intelligence.
1: Yeah, it's 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 just one of these things that just says so much about this this uh, series, you know, and this story, sure. and like what this. I mean, these creatures, and so the rest of the series is essentially kind of a creature of the Ark, uh, more mm-hmm. or less. There there's other stuff that goes on too, but there are some other. They meet some very weird creatures, some very weird. Uh, fauna and stuff like this. Yeah, the
0: flora and, comes next. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, it it gets it gets. I, I like it a lot, and it's kind of why we're doing this now is is I'm a real big fan of this series. This is one of very few comics that I have on a poll list. Mm. Still, most comics I either you know we get comps, comps. or I uh, I get them in trade. You know what I mean? That's just where I am in in life. But this is one I really can't wait to read every month. I find it captivating. I will say. It's never for me it's never quite reached the heights of the first arc mm-hmm. but it's kept me interested throughout and wa- and made me want to know what happens what else happens Saka Juwaya she shows up later on and like she's the third
0: or fourth issue right Yeah
1: exactly yeah, yeah. which which wouldn't really be true I mean like, like I say this isn't a historical this is not a this is not a replacement for the historical fact folks uh, And no.
0: it's better for it
1: yeah, yeah oh, for sure uh, but don't don't read this and then go you know, do this. Don't write a school report on it, Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that's what you asked. You were like, I hope I don't need to know. Yeah, a lot about this. I didn't know. You know, like I say, I, before reading this book and before doing the research for the show, I just knew the very basics that Lewis and Clark were had an expedition.
0: They, they were in the world. Yes. Yeah,
1: and that they had they had made it to Oregon and essentially had forged that first trip. But I had no real details, and uh, now we have a lot. But you don't need, you don't need them for this. You can just read it at face value. Uh, it's, it's, I think the art is spectacular and it gets a lot better, uh, you know, as we go along, he gets much more comfortable with the characters and with movement. The coloring does a lot of the heavy lifting too on this that they do a really good job. It's a quality book folks. It is. And, uh, you know, I don't think we, we do too much stumping for books on this show because we're usually reading something 20 plus years old.
0: You're not gonna go to you're not gonna go to the racks and ask for Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. Exactly.
1: Thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not gonna be you no. Know, you're not gonna. It's, it's not you're gonna do anyone any favors buying an old <laughs> issue like that. But uh, I you know this is some people if you have a bent towards historical fiction, uh, and especially like just do you like monsters? I like monsters. I, I'm a big fan of those <laughs> things. So, uh, there's some really cool ones later on too. They they meet like these crazy talking poisonous birds and these like wispy uh. You know, it's not hard to explain It's, it's really, it's, it's almost uh, It's like a Star Trek But it takes place in revolutionary Early American times or whatever So uh, I dig it And I was glad to get this opportunity to Talk about it to the folks at On the Cosmic Treadmill But uh, that's not the end Of this story Of Manifest Destiny the comic Or the end of the story Of the Lewis and Clark Expedition
0: it is not. But before we go into that, I just wanted to say, I, I, I'd never even heard of this book before. Yeah. I, uh, so,
1: I, so it really is underrepresented. I got to say
0: it is, it is. I mean, when you think of like image, it's uh, people won't shut up about walking dead. That's about like it for yeah. image and or maybe saga. paper girls right now or saga. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, this one just went under my radar. I, I'm, I'm guessing it probably went under more people's radar, but, uh, i'm really glad you turned me on to it i i happened upon the uh the trade earlier in the week and uh-huh. and blew right through it it was a uh, it was and i and i don't say that is <laughs> in like the the damn deconstructed or yeah
1: yeah
0: <laughs> decompressed way but
1: uh yeah there it, were like three words just, in it I was no problem yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i didn't even stop flipping um no no it was just it was just really uh, really captivating really good stuff um I do like the the personalities that Lewis and Clark have, because uh-huh. they're kind of, not really adversarial, but at the same time, kinda.
1: They're, t- <laughs> they're a total contrast, you know, like, Lewis yeah. is played up to be the bookish, nerdy type, and Clark yeah. is the tough the soldier. The shoot first, shoot. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, grab two guns and shoot.
1: As, as, again, like, through reading this, I found out that that wasn't really true, but... Yeah, and that doesn't matter. That's fine, it works great, you want that kind of, you want those personalities to contrast, you want that... Because you want to create, you know, tension and uh, conflict. Uh, that's what we call story. So yes. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, important
0: stuff. Well, like uh, like Lewis said, he said, you know, the the thing they were going to run out, run into more often than not was boredom. Yeah. And uh, we didn't want that here. So uh, and we didn't get it. So that's good. Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm I'm glad you dug it. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a it's a cool book, and you don't need to be like a history buff to enjoy it. You can just. Enjoy it on the face value of it being an old story, and the monsters, again... You like monsters?
0: This book has monsters. Enjoy it. It does. <laughs> no, I was really glad it wasn't a uh, a book where where the writers were just kind of telling us that they know stuff that we don't yeah. and, and really just, you know, sitting in their own rarefied air. I'm I'm glad it was more of a it was it was it was more geared towards telling a a, a story and I was very happy with that. Um, but as you said, the story's not over. We have uh, The Real Lewis and Clark. Uh, The Quora Discovery expedition lasted from May of 1804 to September 1806 and was the first American expedition to cross what is now a western portion of the United States. Uh, The U.S. Mint prepared a special silver medal with portrait of uh, Jefferson and inscribed with a message of friendship and peace called uh, Indian Peace Medals. Uh, these soldiers were to distribute them to uh, the nations that they met.
1: Uh, you know, this isn't the first time I've I've heard about these medals. And as much as hmm. as much as we look at them now, and we're probably thinking, you know, it's like, you know, somebody comes to your land, basically tell, basically evicting you, and giving you, to you to a out. medal. You'd be like, <laughs> who the hell cares about this medal? But it's not true. A lot of these tribes coveted these medals, and they used them to get them through territories. If you had the Jeffersonian medal, you might be allowed into a tribe to speak to a tribe that was warring with you but was okay with Jefferson it 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 did actually play a role it, in it was
0: a, it was a currency
1: yeah it was in some way in a different it was more like a uh, diplomatic yeah. currency though yeah you know yeah. Um, yeah. so it it was interesting uh you know of course by the end of the 19th century then the metal was about as useful as uh you know a uh,
0: confederate money yeah.
1: exactly but uh, <laughs> you know uh, initially it was it, that it was really something to get one it was uh, a rare thing i guess so uh, this expedition also prepared advanced weapons. Among these was an Austrian-made 46 caliber G. Rendoni air rifle, a repeating rifle with a 20-round tubular magazine that was powerful enough to kill a deer. This is basically like an a early version of a Gatling gun, a rotating sure. gun. And uh, after filling the chamber with compressed air, it fired 20 shots almost simultaneously and noiselessly which I find amazing. Noi- like, no yeah. noisy, even. it's like a silent, turning around gun. Uh, Simultaneous shot, brutal. wow. It's also something to say, though, that they barely had to shoot except to hunt. They didn't, yeah. They got into one big skirmish with the Native Americans on the way back from Oregon, but uh, it wasn't the, you know, nonstop battles. Nonstop maybe it has yeah. been dra- dramatized elsewhere. Uh, despite having the largest library in the world relating to America's interior, Thomas Jefferson thought... The explorers might have run-ins with mountains of salt, a race of Welsh-speaking Indians, and even herds of woolly mammoths and giant ground sloths. So he did actually think there might be some monsters in the interior. Mm. Uh, They never did see those mammoths, of course. But uh, (laughs) the Corps did describe 178 previously unknown species of plants and 122 new animals, including coyotes, mountain beavers, and grizzly bears. Do
0: you imagine the first guy to see a
1: grizzly bear was like, yeah. "What?" It's like you—you you would probably throw down your gun and be like, "You are my new master." Done. Yeah. <laughs> you know? How do how do I enter the grizzly bear society, sir? Yes. Clearly, you are far more advanced than I am.
0: <laughs> now, in uh, March of 1804, the Spanish in New Mexico learned from U.S. General James Wilkinson that the Americans were encroaching on territory claimed by Spain. On August 1st, they sent four armed expedi- expeditions of 52 soldiers, mercenaries, and Indians from Santa Fe northward to intercept Lewis and Clark and imprison the entire expedition. So they sent four armed people.
1: Yeah. No, <laughs> no yeah, exactly. Yeah. from, from the, the white Martians came down. Yes.
0: <laughs> now, uh, when they reached the uh, Pawnee settlement on the Platte River in central Nebraska, they learned that the expedition had been there many days before. But because the expedition, at that point, was covering 70 to 80 miles per day, Miles' attempt to intercept them was unsuccessful.
1: So, they, it, it almost got cut off early right here, but yeah. uh, I think that's a pretty good clip, 70 to 80 miles that's a day. That's a
2: lot of walking. They are they moving, boy. They
1: are moving. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a lot of river, I think it's a lot of river action, but still, they are uh, not the dallying around. Uh, Clark's manservant York was a hit with the frontier tribes, many of whom had never seen a person with dark skin. The Arakara people of North Dakota even referred to York as Big Medicine, and speculated that he had spiritual powers. Though not an official member of the Corps of Discovery, York made the entire journey from St. Louis to the Pacific and back, and became a valued member of the expedition for his skills as a hunter.
0: Now during the 19th century references to Lewis and Clark scarcely appeared in history books even during the United States centennial in 1876 and the expedition was largely forgotten. Lewis and Clark began uh, began to gain new attention around the start of the 20th century uh, both the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition in Los, in St. Louis And the uh, 1905 Lewis and Clark Centennial Exposition in Portland, Oregon, showcased Lewis and Clark as American pioneers. Yeah, then they
1: entered the uh, mythology of of American history. I just got to talk a little bit about, because I'll never get another chance to tell this story. This is not really related to anything specific to Lewis and Clark Mm. or the comic book, but I I think it's amazing. Uh, An aside (laughs) about the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition, often known as the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, among many commercial and cultural expositions at the fair, they also had people from around the world on display. This is owing in part to new territories acquired by the U.S. and the recently ended Spanish-American War, and this was for educational and profit purposes. And, with, and Chris, what they re- literally had was they tried to show. they tried to get every <laughs> shade of person that they could. Literally, like they they were like, here's here's a, like a slightly yellow, here's a more yellow, here's a slightly <laughs> here's a milky coffee, here's a dark coffee. Uh, one of the people on display was an African pygmy, Otabenga, who had his teeth filed into points as per the style of his tribe. It wasn't too, too uh, tough meat or anything. Okay. After the fair, he didn't want to go back to Africa. They actually did go back, and he said, mm, I don't want to stay, so take be take, take back to America. Eventually wound up living at the... Uh, Museum of Natural History in New York City for a time, and he eventually became an exhibit at the Bronx Zoo for a very oh, brief time. But he was literally on exhibit in the monkey in the primate house at the <laughs> Bronx oh, Zoo no. with his own <laughs> plaque and everything uh, for like two weeks. Like you know what I mean? And people came and they loved it, and then somebody actually stepped in. and They were like, "Yeah, this is not. Yeah, this is not cool. We can't do this." Uh, yeah. He it's, smokes. yeah, unfortunately, it it's, it's kind of interesting, sad, interesting. Uh, he became a laborer and and simply was like a contractor in the mid-Atlantic states and oh, wow. he died of alcoholism in the uh early 20s or, or maybe late 20s as, as i remember wow. so
0: what a story, though.
1: Yeah, what a, what, a, what a life, you know, from the Pygmy sure. Village to uh, Brock Zoo. How about that?
0: Oof, okay. After, after <laughs> the expedition, uh, Meriwether Mary Lewis, Mary Lewis here, we have, uh, after returning from uh, the expedition, he received a reward of 1,600 acres of land, and Jefferson made him the governor of the Louisiana Territory. In September of 1809, Lewis set out for Washington, D.C. from New Orleans, hoping to remedy some financial disputes stemming from his governorship. On October 10th, he stopped in an inn on the Natchez Trace called Grinders Stand. It was about 70 miles from Nashville. After dinner, he retired to his one-room cabin, and in the pre-dawn hours of October 11th, the innkeeper's wife, uh, Pris- Priscilla Grinner, heard gunshots. Servants found found Lewis's body uh, badly injured from multiple gunshot wounds, each one in the head and the gut. He bled out on his buffalo hide robe and died shortly after sunrise. Uh, his death was ruled a suicide, corroborated by his friend Thomas Jefferson, but later analysis was not too sure.
1: Yeah, it does seem kind of strange because to shoot yourself in the head and the gut. And gut. Suicide. Yeah, uh, I didn't, I, you know, we're not going to go into the conspiracies of it. You can go into them, but... It does seem a little strange. It is worth saying, though, he did have a pretty bad drinking problem uh, huh. throughout his life, which was not uncommon to have in those days, so it wasn't real.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. If
1: everyone that had a drinking problem killed themselves, then we would have had a much smaller society. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, William Clark in 1807, pres- President Jefferson appointed Clark as the Brigadier General of the Militia in the w- Louisiana Territory and the U.S. Agent for Indian Affairs. Clark married Julia Hancock on January 5th, 1808 at Fincastle, Virginia. They had five children. Clark set up his home and headquarters in St. Louis, Missouri, and during the War of 1812, Clark led several campaigns and established the short-lived Fort Shelby, the first post in what is now Wisconsin. Hmm. When the Missouri Territory was formed in 1813, Clark was appointed as the governor by President Madison. He was reappointed to to the position by Madison in 1816 and 1820 by President Monroe. After Julia's death in 1820, William Clark married Julia's first cousin, Harriet Kennerly Radford. They had three children together. He also had a son by the sister of Chief Red Grizzly Bear named Tzikaitzahalakukit Clark. And I, mm. I'm very sorry to all those families involved. Yes. Uh, but uh, she died of mal- malaria, or he died of malaria. And William Clark died in St. Louis on September 1st, 1838, at age 68, which wasn't too bad in
0: those days. That's no, a pretty good, uh, pretty good lifespan back then. Sure. Uh, now, Sacagawea, after the exposition, expedition, uh, Charbonneau and uh, Sacagawea spent three years among the Hidatsa before accepting William Clark's invitation to settle in St. Louis, Missouri. That was 1809. Uh, Clark was in charge of their son, jean Baptiste's education, and would ultimately raise him as a son. Sacagawea gave birth to a daughter, Lizette, sometime after 1810. Uh, Sacagawea would pass uh, of an unknown illness. Uh, they referred to it as a putrid fever around 1812. Her husband, Charbonneau, would live to be 80 years old. Wow. never did. <laughs> That's a long life. Uh, but did ne- never did take his son back from clock. Uh, it's also unclear as to whether he hung under his daughter, either, uh, but that seems seems unlikely. Yeah,
1: see, he was a rambling man. He had no time to yeah. be tied down by kids, <laughs> I think. Uh,
0: Papa was a rolling stone.
1: But yeah, but but, but William Clark raised Sacagawea's son, you know, and uh, yeah. that is that is another story to be told that could be told, but we, we didn't get into it because, you know, this is not actually an American History podcast, even though it seems no. like it today. Uh, <laughs> it's usually a... Comics History Podcast, but first I want to talk a little bit about history in comics mm-hmm. instead of the history of comics. So, uh, even at the dawn of comic books, people saw the medium's merit as an instructional tool. Max Gaines, the father who created the first comic book, Funnies on Parade, in 1933, believed it was great for education and would promote reading in general. After selling his company All American Comics in 1944, Gaines created EC Comics. At that time, it was called Educational Comics. EC Comics continued All Americans Picture Stories from the Bible and added new titles such as Picture Stories from American History. Max Gaines died early. His son Bill took over in 1947 and renamed it e- e- Entertaining Comics, and the rest is history. We know what happened Mad Magazine and Vault of Horror and all that stuff. Uh, we have gone into great detail on this in other podcast episodes, so feel <laughs> yes, free indeed. to check out our, our archives. Explore
0: the archives. Yeah, yes.
1: <laughs> talk a lot about it.
0: Now we also have uh, Classics Illustrated. This was uh, created in 1941 by Albert Cantor. Uh, Cantor was born April 11th, 1897, passed March, thir- uh, March 17th uh, on uh, St. Patrick's Day in 1973. Whoa yes uh in this uh, classic Illustrated intended to present classic literature to young people in comic book form I'm sure a lot of a lot of listeners have seen
2: yeah
0: heard or read these uh in the past or currently uh, they also did some biographies uh for you know Abraham Lincoln Ben Franklin among others
1: and you know they they're actually reprinting these okay. I saw I saw uh Trade collection of classic illustrated, which wow. to me, I mean, probably in the same way. Yeah. Like like whenever you saw that, like whenever you went to someone and they had that or that was at the barber, you were like, oh God, I don't no. want to read anything, <laughs> but I have to read, you know, whatever Huckleberry Finn in, in classic illustrated form. But, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's an interesting, it's, uh, you know, I bet in you know, Classic Illustrated got better distribution than Superman in some locations probably, in America. Probably. So it's a, a big part of uh, comics history. Absolutely. Uh, another company that was dedicated to this kind of educational stuff was Gold Key Dell. Most famous for the Walt Disney Comics, Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck and the like. But they also put out biographies in oversized treasury editions about once a year. Uh, Davy Crockett, Abraham Lincoln. You can never have enough Abraham Lincoln, apparently. Everyone had to take a stab at that guy. (laughs) Uh, Today, there are dozens of comics about history. It's a very popular way to present this information. And uh, uh, we're going to talk about three. We could easily talk about 300. Yes. Um you know, but it's just i to populate a list this much i i really i went i went with one that I thought was very. Uh, Famous and then a couple that are more meaningful to us uh, specifically Mm -hmm. So uh, the cartoon history of the universe by American cartoonist professor and mathematician Larry Gonick is a chronological history of the world He began it in 1978 the final two volumes came out in 2007 and 2009 titled cartoon history of the modern world volumes one and two the first volume was published by Doubleday, this is of the whole series, in 1990, so there was 12, 12 years elapsed from when he started to when the first uh, volume came out, and Gorick received financial support from Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who besides being an editor at Doubleday at the time, just believed in the project, so that must have been nice.
0: Absolutely. Uh, we also have uh, perhaps the most popular uh, historical yeah. comics fiction, is uh, or you know, comics fiction, or non-fiction almost, yeah. <laughs> This is Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Uh, it's a uh, complex memoir of his father's experience uh, incarcerated at Auschwitz during World War II and a, a partial memoir of Spiegelman himself. Uh, now this is the one that you'll know because the uh, the Jews are depicted as mice, the Nazis are cats. I think the French are frogs. It's Yeah, a, the Polish are
1: very, pigs. Yeah.
0: Yes. It's a, it's a it's worth reading for sure, yep. and it was uh, first published by Pantheon Press in, eight, um, in eighteen in nineteen
1: eighty six. That's how old it is. It predated World War Two. <laughs> yes, it, a very it foretold
0: book. it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and this is what
1: I like a lot. Uh, it's currently being put out, "Hip Hop Family Tree" by Ed Piskor. He's the guy. He actually got his start doing American Splendor comics, and he did one mm-hmm. called Whizzywig. Uh But he's a, this is a painstakingly rendered retelling of the history of hip hop from its very beginnings in nineteen seventy three. Published by Fanatic first volume came out 2013, and there are four of I think what I think five volumes, might be six volumes are planned. Hmm. Um, but there are four of them now. Uh, if you like hip hop or, or your New York history, or you know, give it a look. I, I I think it's good. It's got some comedy. It's a fun time.
0: Yes. Now going from nonfiction to fiction, we have uh, Captain Confederacy by Will Shedley and Vince Stone. There's uh, 16 issues uh, in total with in a, uh, across two series, published by Steel Dragon Press and then Marvel's Epic Imprint uh, from 1986 to 1992. This is an alternate world where the South won America's Civil War. The Confederates create a superhero for propaganda purposes.
1: And, of course, I, it's also we should say that we could do easily a 300 title list on historical 3,000. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable. So this is just, this is kind of a hit parade, but we know that, you know, people listening have other ones on their mind, and we want to hear what mm-hmm. they are. Uh, we'll give Certainly. you the contact later. From Hell by Alan Moore and Addie Campbell is a well-known one. Came out from Top Shelf Publishing in 10 issues from 1989 to 1996. It takes place in London during the Whitechapel murders of the late 19th century and it claims that Jack the Ripper is Royal Surgeon William William Gull. Mm.
0: And there's since been a movie, right? I'm That's not allowed right. to see the movies, they, but you, I think there was one.
1: Believe me, I'm not going to allow you to see this movie. Uh, Chris. It's Pretty <laughs> terrible, but you know the book. The book is really great, and and one thing I like about the book is in the very end, if you get the annotated version, an index. Yeah, I mean uh, the index is you, you could spend a year Can't on that by yourself. But uh, Alan Moore admits up front that it's impossible. What he posits that William Gull yes. is could be the uh, Jack the Ripper, but he just thinks it makes for a very interesting story, and it does. It does. Uh, it's you know, it's, it's kind of like you got to read two or three times before you really get you Fruit know the swallow the, it yeah. exactly you know what i mean but uh uh i have read it several times now it's one of my one of my favorite books yeah
0: because they even recently uh released a companion book for it yep. which is a whole other index of it it's there's a lot of stuff i on mean it. Clearly um... if you
1: wanted you could leave the 21st century and go live in the 19th century and just like fall into the uh t- Topics of this book—it's so—it's so dense. It's very, very this is dense. Alan Moore, after all, this is how he is.
0: Yes, its its its, it's scary how dense it is. Um, speaking of scary, we have the new adventures of Hitler, <laughs> by, <laughs> by Grant Morrison and Steve Yowl We've—we've spoke about this during yep. a couple of our Morrison issue uh, issues episodes. Yep. Um, now, this first appeared in Cut, which is a uh, Scottish arts magazine in 1989, and then would run in the magazine Crisis for issues 46 through 49 in 1990. This is based on some really wacky claims of Hitler's sister-in-law, uh, Bridget Dowling, that Hitler lived with her and her husband, Alois, Alois, Hitler Jr., and uh, their son, William Patrick Hitler, in Liverpool uh, from 1912 to 1913. It was very, very strange. And she even claims um, credit, she takes credit for his uh, trademark mustache.
1: Oh. Oh. She said, a, she, she's out there. You'd look good if you, uh, you know, smeared something on your lip. Is that what she told him?
0: Or, she's uh, like, uh, is all is Al, was all Al of a Hardy big backer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he will be. Uh, it's also, we're going to name a couple. There's a line of comics DC has called Elseworlds. Usually, it's original mm-hmm. graphic novels, though it's not always. Sometimes it's issues, and a lot of that does tend to be almost historical fiction, but with DC characters, you know, placed into historical. Uh, points of, of history historical points of history how yeah, you like that uh uh-huh. it's also them also mixing with sometimes fictional uh literary classics, literary, literary fiction, characters yeah. but I, I i focused on the history ones here uh the one that actually kicked off the whole elseworlds line was get batman gotham by gaslight by brian Augustin and mike mignola that was one issue february 1989 it's about uh Bruce Wayne exists in 1889 and rubs soldiers with many of the 19th century contemporaries. We got Freud, we got uh, other guys, you know, all types of people. And some Jack the Ripper's in there, too. This had a sequel in 1991 called Batman Master of the Future.
0: I think that one was received not as well. Um, as well no, don't <laughs> no. We have a uh, Superman, A Nation Divided, by Roger Stern and Eduardo Barreto. This was uh, one issue in 1998. This is Superman fighting alongside the Union Army during America's Civil War. Uh, Superman Red Sun by Mark Miller and Dave Johnson and uh, Killian Plunkett. This was uh, three issues, 2003, and this is basically the story of what if Baby Kal-el touched down in Russia rather than Kansas uh, after being, you know, flung through space from the doomed planet Krypton. Turns out, it'll be kind of crazy. Yeah, I did. did you like that? I
1: liked it. I do like it. I, I, uh, I thought
0: it was a bit overrated. but I, uh,
1: I think it doesn't end as strongly as it begins.
0: That's Mark Miller.
1: But I do love the uh, alternate versions, like they use Bizarro Superman as america superman you know what Captain, I, mean? like the yeah. I love the uh russian batman i love him I, he's just so hmm. awesome with his stupid little russian hat and everything and like his <laughs> dirty cape i just think it's a good character but yeah it's 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 i mean literally i think what happened with this book was they did exactly what or mark did exactly what we did and said what if superman landed in russia and just never really developed it beyond that. What if? Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Kind of took it to just a point, and then by the end, it just became another Superman book. It was uh, sure, but you know, I, I do like it. Uh, I think it's I think it's worth reading, especially if you can get it real cheap. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, another thing I do like is JSA: The Liberty File by Dan Jolly and Tony Harris. This was two issues in 2000. This sort of reimagines the members of the Justice Society as like a secret team doing covert operations. And it's also rendered a very highly real- realistic style, like, you know, you can see the eyeballs through the eye holes in the masks and yeah. stuff like that. Uh, this is during World War II for the U.S. military. Uh, this was followed up by JSA The Unholy 3 in 2003, which, again, that, that was not as good as a follow-up, but they are... Collected in one trade called the Liberty and Files, I believe, right?
0: And was the Whistling Skull part of that too? The no. one that came out post New Fifty Two?
1: No, that wasn't part of. I I I think it actually is. You're right. Part of this
0: series. The Liberty File, but not part of the trade.
1: But it's not part of the trade. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, and gotcha. I can tell you now, the Whistling Skull is does not even you you can skip it. Uh yes, In my opinion, I, I I really like the first <laughs> one a lot. Then we get diminishing returns as we go along.
0: Certainly certainly we also have uh, Teen Titans The lost annual by Chuck Dixon and J.H. Williams III This was a single issue in 2008 And this is about the original Teen Titans Going into space to save John F. Kennedy Uh, It was originally planned for A 2003 release as the Teen Titans Swingin' Elseworlds special
1: Boy I wish that had come out Uh, Then back to Alan Moore We got the League of Extraordinary Extraordinary Gentlemen by Alan Moore And Kevin O'Neill And this is where we really blur the line between historical fiction and nonfiction. But uh, this is America's Best Comics, a.k.a. Wildstorm, a.k.a. DC. Uh, (laughs) 15 issues plus one original graphic novel, plus, like, I mean, a lot of other stuff that came out, uh, all the Nemo books and stuff. 1999 to present, I believe there's still more yet to come. Oh wow! So this is several Victorian era fictional characters band together to defeat historic and fictional menaces, sort of like a Victorian era Justice League, as I always look at it. You know, <laughs> uh, and their travels do eventually take them to the 20th century. This it's a complex book, boy.
0: Yeah, that, that's a it's it's another dense one. It's big uh, time, <laughs> and you got to be in the mood for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I often try to get uh, English teachers to read that. <laughs> None, of
0: them have been. None of them are into it, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, we have a Marvel's uh, 1602. This was the big Neil Gaiman project uh, around the turn of the century, or a little bit after that, uh, with art by Andy Kubit, uh, digitally painted by Richard Eisenhoff. This is an eight-issue series for Marvel, November 2003 through June 2004. This is Marvel superheroes existing in the Elizabethan era, and they fight an otherworldly menace. Uh, I think... Uh, Contemporary Captain America somehow showed up there too. Um, <laughs>
1: Why not? He got frozen and then thrown back in time.
0: <laughs> yes. Whoa. No, he was revealed to be, there was like a, a masked guy that was, was a, following it was, the it crew. was the whole time. Yeah, it was a long-haired Captain America. Uh, It led to three sequels. Uh, We have 1602: The New World, went five issues in 2005. Uh, 1602: Fantastic Four, uh, with a K.
1: Yeah.
0: This was five issues from November 2006 to March 2007, and Spider-Man 1602, five issues and throughout 2009.
1: And uh, yeah. Wait, I was gonna ask you. You thought? You know, I only I took a look. Not good. Well, I took a look at the art for the No Game in One, and I was—it was, it was pretty, pretty. I was art. real impressed by that digital yeah. painting. I was like, "Wow!" And and that's that's—that was quite a while
0: Quality looking book
1: for 2005. Like digital painting is not where it is now. Now they you sure. know lay it down on the Cintiq tablet, no problem. But uh, it looked good. I like the idea sounds good, but I have heard that the execution left something to be desired. Boring. Uh, there is the Life Eaters by David Brin and Scott Hampton. That was an original graphic novel by Wildstorm in 2003. And this is the Norse gods of Asgard get involved with the Nazis when the Nazis win World War II.
0: Sure. And we have a uh... yeah. Why not? Uh, it's funny how uh, how comics had to had to. They kind of had to tap dance around World War II. You had—I uh, don't know if it was actually a concept from the Golden Age, but uh, when Roy Thomas had the uh, the Spear of Destiny mm-hmm. with uh, with like the uh, the All Star Squadron and stuff, so like the heroes couldn't go into Germany otherwise right. they'd become brainwashed. I mean, that stuff's always cool to consider because uh, it's it's so easy to be like, well, why why doesn't Superman just kill
1: exactly? <laughs> yeah, Superman could have ended the war in one in one hour, you know, if not yeah, one
0: from one his minute. from his kitchen. Yeah, but uh,
1: yeah, I, I do I do love X. Explanations like that, and then so we, it gives you it gives rise to these alternate scenarios that are, you know, yeah, cause, uh, all over the, the place, the, really.
0: Because uh, you know th- this could om- almost turn into a whole Roy Thomas thing. Because he him and his literary uh, his he borrows from literature so much, yeah. especially during the All Star Squadron era. Like you'd have. Uh, What's his face? Uh, Iron Monroe's father was Hugo Danner, who was the guy who wrote the story that influenced Siegel and Schuster to make Superman. Wow. I mean, just so much stuff. Like the the, the robot from the movie Metropolis held the Crisis on Infinite Earths back. It was just so much weird stuff. It's it, great stuff to read. It's 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 very dense. It's very uh, footnote heavy, but uh, a blast yeah. if you if got the time. Um, now we have uh, Granville by Brian Talbot is five issues, 2009 through present, published by Dark Horse in the United States. Now, this is set in a world in which France won the Napoleonic Wars and invaded Britain, and in which the world is populated mostly by anthropomorphic animals, as you would imagine.
1: That's what that's what would have happened, yeah, if Napoleon <laughs> Bonaparte won. We'd mm-hmm. probably all be walking and working alongside, you know, anthropomorphic dogs and cats. It's how I imagine it. I think uh, that sounds great. It's it's a pretty cool series, but <laughs> it is definitely it goes heavily into the fiction side of the historical fiction. Yes. <laughs> but we know that we have not even scratched the surface of. Uh, historical fiction in comics, or even no. history in comics, and uh, no, now they're
0: all bubbling in the back of my head. Now, but we've gone you, too you long. Got
1: Roy, you got Roy, got <laughs> Roy Thomas coming up there. I, I know we I, got
0: I, Earth, we got Earth Swastika. Come on! Oh
1: right, right. I mean, I mean, I really only stuck to a couple of publishers. So sure, uh, we'd love to hear from you and know what your favorite uh, comics for history-related comics sure. are, and uh, what you think of Manifest Destiny and uh, whether you're going to give it a shot. So if you Want to drop us a line? You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic tmill history. Uh, at Twitter at cosmic tmill. My personal Twitter is at ReggieReggie.
0: I'm at Ace Comics.
1: And every week I want you to go and check out Chris's blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.com he has been whipping out the books like you wouldn't believe, boy. I mean, you are just, you are talking about history. You're going from books that came out a month ago to books that came out 30 years ago. 60 years ago, yeah. 60 years ago sometimes. (laughs) I mean, you are really ricocheting around, and uh, you just posted a picture of uh, some books you picked up uh, on a round you did today. I don't know where you went to half-price books or whatever. Bookmans, yes. But I know that there are some uh, gems coming up very soon coming from that pile i'm sure will be mine yes. for these so it's a new dc comics being reviewed every single day and uh really insightful reviews you show ads you show panels you really mm-hmm. delve into the book it's the next best thing to reading the comic and in some cases better than reading the comic <laughs> but uh you know we'll let you decide which comics those are those are so uh i think that's all we got from this week chris you got anything else for him
0: I was going to uh, I was going to apologize to our uh, UK listeners for the uh, accent, but I'm not even sure that was the accent that was affecting. So I'm just going to apologize to everybody.
1: Yeah. Everybody, if, we're very sorry. We are. If not, it
0: sounded like I was mocking you, it was inadvertent.
1: We uh, <laughs> we are, you know, not trained. As amazing as it might be, we're not trained <laughs> vocalists. So we we're are, not
0: classically trained. No. We
1: just we do the best we can to at least at least keep the voices <laughs> different enough from each other. That I'm
0: not even sure I did that. Yeah,
1: you know, we don't want to, you know, otherwise it would just be us uh, doing New York accents the whole time. So yes, <laughs> next time we'll do we'll do a uh, we'll do a book that takes place in New York. We can really make poker fun at ourselves. I know it. But uh, if that's all you got for him, uh, until next time, I want you to keep it on the treadmill without getting dysentery.
2: I profess and I don't jest, cause the words I manifest, they will take you, sedate you, and I will stress upon you the need for, you all to feed your minds and souls, so you can lead yourself to peace, I got a real objective here, I am effective here, cause I select a clear method for all, suckers I'm all, they fall and and crawl, into the pit of purgatory, I go for glory. I'm taking inventory, counting all the tough luck ducks while i marry, Relate and equate, dictate and debate, cause my fate is to be co-making history. I use sincerity, but i still bury the doubts and questions of all the skeptics. I'm kicking clout and I'll even bet this is true. There's nothing so-so, cause I know right about this minute. I'm in it, admit it, I did it for you, cause this is what i been to. So chill with lion skill That we almost fulfilled The proper mission for us And yo, this is a must Do these lines of my rhymes I your, your test? Huh, these are the words That I manifest I manifest I manifest These the words I manifest